Amen. Good morning. We're transitioning from the focus on, on Jesus last week, looking at the prophet who is not welcome in his hometown, uh, not welcome for doing the same things that he's about to call the apostles to do. And so last week we ended with, and he went about among the villages teaching. And so what we see from that is that Jesus and his disciples, the apostles, those closest to him, went village to village. And this is what they did. They, they traveled with him and they observed. As he taught and as he healed, they didn't realize this was their classroom. This was their time to learn. And now it is their time to put into practice what they've seen Jesus do. And so we're going to see uh, when he commissions them that their time with Jesus, they're, they're listening, they're learning, they're watching. These are essential to discipleship but also to ministry. And so this morning we're going to look at uh, some of the observations that we have in the text that are historical and some that are normative. And so that's an important distinction to make. Because when we're reading scripture, there is always the, the danger of taking something that's a historic detail and applying it for all times to all peoples. And so there are always principles in scripture that apply to us. However, we have to show discernment to see what is uh, historic, meaning that it is particular to the people who it, it describes and who it's written to, and then who it, what is normative, meaning it is normal for all times. And so we also make the distinction between what is descriptive, what describes an event that happened, and what is prescriptive, which prescribes what we should do going forward. And so we're going to see a little bit of both. We're going to bring out a lot of the details of what was going on then, what was expected of the apostles. But we're also going to look at principles that even though we are not apostles, there are principles that we see in Jesus' interaction and his instructions to them that, that still apply to us. And there are many lessons for, for ministry and for discipleship. And uh, so we're going to jump right into the text because this is one of those passages that we may tend to just read over. Okay, Jesus calls the twelve. That has nothing to do with me. They cast out demons. It has nothing to do with me. They said, take a staff. That has nothing to do with me. They said, stay in someone's home. Shake the dust off your sandals. That has nothing to do with me. And we might, we might gloss over this. But there's a lot in this passage that we can learn from and, and a lot I want to pull out. So let's jump right in. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Lord, there is no word in your scriptures that is not true and that it is not profitable. Lord, I pray that when we open your word, we would read with eager hearts and eager minds, that we would be transformed, our minds would be renewed by your unshakable word. When the world around us seems shaken every day, 
when lies and confusion and hatred and division seem like the language of our day. You call us to life and peace and unity and truth and steadfastness because You are these things. And in You, we have these things. In Christ, we are united to You and united to one another. And so I pray this morning as we open Your Word that Your Spirit would teach us, would guide us, would instruct us, would convict us where needed. That we would learn how You build the foundation and establish Your church. And also learn as how we as Your church can be obedient to You can take from these principles so that we may stand fast for the Gospel. Our enemy is still the same, but our message is still the same. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Lord, thank You that You made known to us the only way to that kingdom, Jesus Christ our Lord. That through His ministry, through His death, through His resurrection and ascension, we have His authority to proclaim His gospel to the nations. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this detail, or excuse me, this account where Jesus sends out the 12. And so we're going to spend all of our time in Mark, but before we go there, I want us to go to Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 10. Uh, So this gives us a fuller picture, almost a commentary, if you will, on what's going on in in Mark. And I'm going to keep referring back to Matthew, but I don't want you to have to keep turning back to Matthew. So I'm going to read it all in its context. I'm going to bring point out a a few things, then we're going to focus on the details that Mark includes, using Matthew to help us along the way. So, Matthew chapter 10, we're going to begin uh, context in verse 1, but I'm going to read 5 through uh, 15. So, Matthew 10, verse 1, and he called to him the twelve, same thing we see in Mark, disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Matthew goes into more detail about their authority. Gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So, this is a a broad-reaching authority. And we'll get into what authority means later on. Matthew names the disciples. We're going to pick up in verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This first uh, initiating mission of the apostles is to Israel. Israel must be left without excuse. Village to village, town to town, the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, the Messiah, Mashiach is is, is here. That is the message. And what are they to do? Verse 7, and proclaim as you go. Preaching is not a side note. It is is the, the very breath that you speak. As you go, proclaim. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while you're doing that, Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons to confirm that this is the kingdom of heaven. God restoring all things is now on earth. How do we know? Well, the demons are being cast out and every affliction is being healed. The dead are rising. You receive without payment, give without pay. Uh, This is not for any financial gain. It's given to you freely, you give it freely. 
Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Remember that detail. We'll get into that later. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his wages, his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. Another helpful detail for later. And stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Uh, We will address that later. So, now that you've got the broader context and the additional details in Matthew, I want to dive in to Mark. And before we do that, I want you to understand how to understand this, this passage. Because if you notice, there are no proper names in this. And so to understand this, the passage itself is outlined by the, the, the pronouns. Him, they, them, you. We'll get into those in each section. And it's driven by the verbs. And so I want to walk through those quickly. Walk through our outline. Walk through the, the pronouns and the verbs so you can kind of get the, the flow of this. Um, so first thing, we see the commission from Jesus. He drives verse 7, which is so packed. We're going to spend a few minutes on verse 7 itself. He, he calls. He begins to send them out, and then he gives them authority. And then the next verse, he, he, he uh, charges. The second one, his instruction to them. He charges them. Now from Jesus to the disciples, there's a transition here. And then he, he tells them to take nothing and, uh, and to, to wear sandals. And so the instructions there, charging, taking, wearing, getting into the details of their, their journey. Then next, we're going to get into the, uh, the interactions. There's instruction for their interactions. And then he says to them, Jesus speaking to the disciples now, whenever you, second person, enter a house, he talks about staying there, uh, and then the conflict with those who will not receive you or will not listen to you. And then the response is shaking off the dust from your feet. So you get Jesus to the disciples, speaking directly to the disciples, and then you get another reference to the disciples. They, speaking of the disciples again, then you see the, the fruit of their ministry. They proclaimed, they cast out, they anointed, and they healed. And so this is the, the flow of the passage. Jesus speaking to the disciples speaking about who they will interact with and then the response of what happens to their ministry. So, first thing here. And he called the twelve and began to send them two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So there's a lot of things we're going to look at, at in verse 7. And the first thing is called. And he called. An absolute prerequisite for an apostle. You must be called by the incarnate God. God in the flesh must say to you, I am calling you. I am giving you a particular charge. This right out of the gate flies in the face of, of um, the Catholic, Roman Catholic doctrine of apostolic succession. That there is a, a line of apostles or others claiming to be apostles. To be apostles, we're getting this in the next verb here, but sent ones. There is a particular set of sent ones. And those are the apostles of Christ. They have, must have met Christ face-to-face, incarnate, to be sent out. First thing. Second thing, he called the twelve. 
No more, no less. Why is this important? There is no need for other apostles because there is exactly 12. We've dealt with this before, but this must be ingrained in our heads. The number 12 should bring up a lot of biblical imagery. One of the main numbers in the Old Testament is the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. And so God, if God is bringing a new covenant with new people, he must reinstitute those 12 tribes, and he does it through 12 apostles. Does it through 12 men called by the Lord to stand as pillars, the foundation, just like Jacob's sons, the foundation on which the rest of the kingdom will be built. And so when he rebuilds the kingdom, a spiritual Israel, there is 12 and exactly 12 apostles to build that up. So the number 12 comes up often, and that's important. And even when you get to to Revelation, you see 12 and multiples of 12 throughout Revelation. The 144, the 144,000. This is all to show a complete nature of God's people. It was physical in the Old Testament, and now it is spiritual in the New, and they are the foundation of it, as Paul says. And so when he called the twelve, he began to send them. This word in the Greek is the word for apostle. They are the sent ones. He sent them out in in a particular charge. They are sent by Christ. And then the next important detail here is he sent them out two by two. Now this is something that we see throughout Scripture. There is an important principle here that, is, that we can bring this home, and this is helpful for us. From early on, it is not good that man should be alone. All the way back to the garden. And when God was forming his people in the wilderness, it was not good that Moses was alone. Moses ministered by himself from sunup to sundown. They bring all their problems to him, and this is not a good thing. So Moses called other faithful men with him, other elders, to help solve the problems of the people. We see when the the apostles are sent out and the disciples go out from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, they go not one by one, but they go two by two. Paul, a wise man, always takes an encourager with him. There is accountability. There is encouragement. There is protection. And one of the most beautiful scriptures on this is Ecclesiastes 4. And this is something that is, this is not uh, just a historical detail. This is a principle that is good for us. And I love the, the picture that this paints. And this is necessary for the Christian life, but also for ministry. So picking up in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one, because they have good reward for their toil. But if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Every one of us knows what this feels like. Every one of us knows what it feels like to be alone and not lean on other people or to have people in our lives who we can lean on and the the encouragement and the blessing that comes from that. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Old Testament men were very secure in their manhood. This is men on, on the battlefield and it's cold at night and they're keeping warm and we'll leave it at that. And Verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Jesus knew the accountability of sending them two by two, the encouragement, the, the, the picking up. If one gets discouraged, the other holds it up, holds him up. This is an important principle for us in the church. This is something that our, our military uses very often. Uh, the, the, uh, the uh, brotherhood. I love listening to stories of 
old soldiers and talk about how they just couldn't go on in their own strength. They could not take one more step. And the guy next to him, sometimes kick him, slap him, and encourage him, challenge him, we're going on. You're going to sit here and cry? And that's, that, that's the way we do it. That's the way they do it in the military. But for most of us, we would pull the other one along. We would encourage one another. We would, we, we would challenge one another. And this is the principle for the uh, disciples, but also for us. And so there is no precedent. One of my least favorite things is this idea of Lone Ranger Christianity. Uh, I don't need to go to church. I don't, I don't need anyone else. I can do this all on my own. There is no place in Scripture where this is encouraged. It is actually discouraged all throughout Scripture. We need one another. We are brought into fellowship with the living God, and not just that, into fellowship with one another, because we are weak on our own. We are prone to wander. We are prone to fall in sin. And so there is a protection for the disciples, but also a protection for us. And so he sends them out two by two and protects them. The next thing is he, he gave them authority. And this language in, in the original is that he bestows it on them, and he keeps providing it for them. And so they derive their, their power from him, and he keeps giving it. And this word authority is interesting, because the word authority means, it means they're, they're given the right to have power over something. There is a, a, a right, a privilege given to them that they might have power, a power outside of themselves to have authority over something else. Jesus, from his power, gives that to them. And then they, they have that power over unclean spirits. Now, we've seen a lot of the spiritual and the, and the possession over the past couple months, and a, or yeah, a couple weeks, a couple chapters. And so I wanted to include details as we go. I haven't spent a lot of time on demon possession or the spirits, but I think there's some important things to to recognize here. Um, One, somehow, and we don't fully understand what's going on here, in the inauguration of the Messianic kingdom, meaning when Jesus comes in flesh on earth and says, the kingdom of God is at hand, something happens with the demons. They go nuts. Because they start taking over people, they start, uh, you, you, you see of all these, these demon possessions, and you see of all this demonic activity, and maybe that it's just bringing them to light, maybe it's, it's, it's aggravating them, uh, you know, maybe there's something going on here, but we don't see any instances of demonic possession in the Old Testament. Now we see demonic influence, now we see the demons and the spirits working behind the scenes, but not controlling people. And we also don't see any instances of demonic possession after Acts. You would think if this was a a common problem that Paul would have written about it somewhere. So there's something that is unique to the ministry of Christ and the the apostolic ministry. And not to say that that demons uh, do not have influence anymore and that the spiritual realm is, is, is inactive. But there was something about this time where we see it really come to the, come to the surface. And so, um, one of the things we're going to see is that Jesus is, this shows that Jesus has power over that realm. His authority given to them. You can cast out demons because they are subject to me. They are subservient to my kingdom. And so my, part of my authority given to you. And so there's a couple questions I want us to think about before we move on to our next section. First is, what does the sending and authorizing of the, of the apostles say about his position, about his authority. What does that say about Jesus? And so 
we must remember that all authority, all authority, heaven and earth, those are not random demons that are off on their own. They are Jesus' demons. He has authority over them, and he gives that to his apostles. Everything from the Father has been given to to him, and everything that has marked Jesus up to this point is now going to be given to them. This is also kingly language. When a king comes in his kingdom, and he sends out his servants, this is how he does it. He calls them to his throne. And he says, you are my emissaries. You are my ambassadors. I am giving you my authority. I'm giving you my, my signet ring. The ability to make decisions and to change things and giving my authority to you and I'm going to send you out so that you can oversee my kingdom. This is what's going on. There is a, there is a royal commission going on here. And as Luke sums this up in Luke 9, he says they are sent out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. Luke is a very short version of this. But it's a great summary. They are sent out to proclaim the kingdom. The king is here. We are the king's emissaries to proclaim that king and to heal. Now my next question on this section is, what does sending, the sending and, and authorizing say about Jesus' view of the disciples? Because we can overlook that. Have they given us a lot of reason to be confident up to this point? We're only six chapters in, and a lot of you commented that I thought it was funny that the, the disciples are like comic relief up to this point. You know, like they, they were fearful on the boat. They questioned Jesus every step of the way. They doubt what he's doing. And here they are being sent out with authority to cast out demons. This should give us pause. This is unthinkable that these little Padawan knuckleheads who are still trying not to, you know, not to stick their, their, their feet in their mouth are being sent out to cast out demons and proclaim the kingdom. But if it was up to their ability and their authority, we should be really worried. They should be concerned. But it's not their authority that has any effect. It's Jesus's. So this, is, this should be an encouragement to us. How often do we stress out about our own abilities? How often do we question ourselves? I, I don't know if I can share the gospel with someone I don't know enough. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if, if, if God even hears my prayers. We put way too much emphasis on our own abilities, on our own authority. If he can use them, the most unlikely vessels, God is in the, the practice of using the unlikely for his glory. Because if he picked the, the mightiest warriors, the most gifted communicators, they would receive glory, not him. And so many of you feel like you're the most unlikely Christian, the most unlikely witness, all the more to give God glory. Because in your weakness, His strength will be evident. And if He can use them for His glory, He can use anyone, even you. We tend to look back at the Scriptures and think the the apostles were these stalwarts of the faith. No, they weren't. They were fishing and tax collecting and arguing amongst one another until Jesus got a hold of them. And so it is with us. And if we are effective at all, if God uses us for anything or does anything through us, it is only through Christ's authority and his power. 
And so in the same way, we don't have to put the pressure on ourselves to be effective in ministry. We also don't take the glory upon ourselves. It is all for His glory. So that's our first section. Second one. The other ones will be shorter than, the, than that one. Uh, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their, their belts. This commission was one of simplicity. Let's look at their instructions quickly here. A staff. I mean, this was a, a common article to the ancient world, and its use depended on the user. So there would be staffs for, for different purposes. A traveler's staff was a common item. You would lean on it, and you'd also use it as protection if there were wolves or something that, that came up to you in the night. He also says to take nothing, uh, no bread. Common word. When, they, when Scripture uses bread, it's not literally bread. It, it can be bread. It's just don't take any other provisions. You eat breakfast, and you, and you go. Don't, don't bring anything else with you. And don't bring a bag. And typically, you'd carry your food in a bag or additional supplies. So, stripping them down to the bare necessities to simplicity. Not even money in your belt. You wear, wear a belt because it keeps your, your, your clothes together. Uh, but don't even put any money so you can acquire these things, as Matthew tells us. You can wear sandals. Uh, this is probably a good idea because there's rocky, uneven soil. But sandals are not a comfort item either. It's usually a thin piece of leather that is wrapped around your, your foot by, by straps. Or if you're, you're, you're very poor, it's bunches of hay that are wrapped around your, your feet with straps. So again, this is not a, a luxury cruise. Uh, don't take two tunics. This is the long uh, undergarment. It's, it's uh, a little more presentable than, uh, than uh, long johns, but not, not much. I mean, it's, this is kind of what you'd wear closest to your, to your skin. Don't even take two of those. Take one, one, uh, one outfit and one outfit and your staff and put some shoes on, and that's, and that's pretty much it. But the detail from Matthew is really helpful because um, if you read commentaries, if you read the, the different uh, accounts very quickly, I don't like to get into debates, but I think this is helpful. When you read Matthew, you read, you read Luke, you'll see some inconsistencies where Matthew says, don't take a staff. Um, and Luke will say different things as well. But the detail in Matthew is important. Do not acquire for yourself food, staff, to tun- an additional tunic. Basically, take what you have. Don't go out and buy additional things for, for the, the, the travel. You know, don't uh, feel like you've got to overly prepare. This is, you're, you're not preparing for every contingency. You are going out in simplicity. And so this is, this is speaking about the supplies themselves. Do not put trust in your supplies, but also in your own planning and your own preparation. Because there's this, this desire, we all have it. Okay, I'm, I'm going out. What are all the things I need? Where's, what's my, uh, my uh, checklist? You know, uh, and, and um, but Jesus is calling them to simplicity. Not dependent on your own supplies or your own ability or your own, your own plan, but dependent on me. And one of the things I thought was interesting in this study is this is the exact parallel to the items that are in Exodus 12 when Israel goes out of, out of, Exodus, or, uh, out of Egypt. This will be on the screen. I want to do this quickly. But look at Exodus 12. In this manner you shall eat it, speaking of the Passover, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So in the same way, when they are being sent out, brought out from all the the, the comforts of Egypt, God said, don't bring anything else, only what you need to travel. 
I will provide for you. I will give you the plunder of the Egyptians so that you can have, you can have uh, coins and you can build my temple later on. I will give you food in the wilderness, but you will be completely dependent on me. And this is exactly what's going on here. This is a training in dependence on the Lord. Your extra supplies are not needed. This is all very simple and very basic. You're relying on the Lord, and as we're going to see in a moment, the provision of others. You're going to be welcomed into homes, hopefully. And this fulfills that the the laborer deserves his wages, deserves his food. And so you see this stripping back of everything so that they can be focused on the business of the Lord. So as, as I was thinking about this, so many private jet preachers and fake Benny Hinn healers and all of them should take account to this. It, is, it sickens me how many people I see in ministry getting rich off the backs of, of, of others and making it all about what they can garner from these things. And, and this is where we've got we to be careful. So when we talk about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive, if you make this uh, prescriptive, that means that every one of us should get rid of everything and you are sinning if you have more than, more than one shirt. I've heard people do this. Uh, this is specific for the apostles. But the, the principle, the prescriptive principle is important. And it should make us stop and think. And so I want to bring this home for a minute. How much do I trust in my supplies? How much do I trust in what I can plan, in, in my preparation. What would I do if everything was stripped away? Who would I trust in? Who would I find my hope? Would I be able to sleep at night? Do I trust in the Lord's provision? This is not a precept. I'm not telling you to go out and sell all of your things. But you should hold them with a very open hand. Because if they are all stripped away tomorrow, will you trust in the Lord? Or will you trust in your stuff or trust in your plans? There's an old pastoral saying that I think brings us together really well. The man who doesn't prepare, speaking of sermon prep, is a fool. But the man who trusts in his preparation is a bigger fool. And the principle there is absolutely. Should we study the scriptures and should we, should we plan before we go on a trip? And should we do these things? Absolutely. But if you're only trusting in those things, you're putting your, your, your hope in those, how big is your God? Do you really understand whose authority you, you, you preach in or whose provision you even eat dinner in? And this is really important to bring this stuff home. So in our next section, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there somebody's car. Um, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you, and you will not listen, uh, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So it's important for us to understand uh, Eastern culture, an honor and shame culture, which we don't really have. This was very common that they, they didn't have hotels, that if you were a Jew, especially a Jew, traveling from town to town, you would stay with one of your, your kinsmen. And if, even if he wasn't one of, one of someone from your, your tribe, if a Jew comes to your, your town and you don't welcome them in, that is shame on you and that is shame on your entire family. So there is a lot of honor built up in hospitality. And this still exists 
within that, that part of the world, within Eastern culture to this day. Even amidst all of the, the persecution and, and tension between Christians and Muslims right now in the Middle East, there are many stories of, of missionaries being protected by Muslims from other Muslims who would want to kill them, and, and vice versa. There are many instances of Christians or, or Jews bringing in people from different faiths into their, their home because of this, this honor and shame. And it's not absolute, but this still exists, and we don't, we don't really have that. You know, someone comes to our door, we kind of peek through the, through the window and want to see who, who's there, or our family comes to town, we send them to a hotel. Uh, they probably deserve it, but we still do. This would be, you know, this would be so shameful if other sons of, of Israel came to your town and you did not welcome them in. So not only is this a, a, a personal and familial shame, but it's a, it's a, um, it's a broader spiritual shame, which we'll get to in a moment. So if you come and they welcome you in, and as Matthew says, if they are a worthy home, stay there. Don't be an ungrateful guest. Don't, don't bounce around. That would also be shameful. If you went to someone's home and, and, you, and you said, all right, well, uh, dinner wasn't up to par, so I'm going to go over here and see if they, you know, if they can offer me something better. You stay there as long as you were in that, that town. And um, we looked at this last week. But the deal with reception here, if they receive you, at the end of chapter 10, and, and chapter 10 is the, the apostolic chapter in Matthew. And at the end of that chapter, if they receive you, they receive me. And if they receive you, they're also receiving the one who sent me. There's a lot at stake here. When they welcome you in as messengers of the king, they are receiving not just the messenger, but the one who sent him and the message. So they, if they receive you and if they listen to you, these two things are connected and they are inseparable. So there's a lot going on here as Jesus sends them out. And, and, and it's not just a um, condemning, or, or it's not just a condemnation on the house that won't accept you. Mark says that place. If there is a town who will not welcome you, that entire town, there will be a testimony against them. And so verse 11, as he says, if they won't receive you, so they won't receive the messenger of the king. They won't listen to you. They won't receive the, the, the message of the king. When you leave, shake the dust off there. Shake the dust that is on your feet. So this we wouldn't understand. There was a, there was a Jewish principle that arose in between the, uh, the uh, Testaments. As the Jews went to, after the Old Testament was written, a couple hundred years before Jesus, as the, as the Jews went to war with, with, with Rome and, and other factions, there was a line drawn around Israel, an, an invisible line. And if you traveled anywhere, it was customary for you to shake the dust off of your, your feet before you stepped back in, into Jerusalem. Why? Because you would not dare bring unsanctified dust back into Jerusalem. They, they would not want the, the Holy Land to be stained with the dirt of pagan nations. And so Jesus is making a connection that if they won't welcome you in, it's like you traveled to a pagan nation Shake the dust off your sandals. You should have nothing to do with them. And there's a very strong picture of this in Nehemiah. And this will be up on the screen, Nehemiah 5.13. So Nehemiah gives a charge to the people. And look how he describes those who, won't, um, those who won't comply. I also shook out of the fold of my garment and said, so I'm shaking out the dust of my garment symbolically. So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, covenanting with the Lord. 
So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. This was a very strong sign. This is a testimony against them, as Mark goes on to say, or, or quote Jesus here. And that testimony is, a, is, a, is public displeasure, but also divine condemnation. If you go to the house and they welcome you, you bring your peace with you. The peace of the Lord, the peace of fellowship. If they don't welcome you, you take that peace away. And it would be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah. But how could that be? I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah was wicked. Sodom and Gomorrah was wicked, but they did not hear the gospel. If you hear the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is here. Repent and believe in him, and you still reject his messengers. It is worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. And so this is where we bring it home. There are dire consequences to not believing. This is what's at stake with the gospel. Rejection of the gospel is rejection of the king. It means a worse fate than Sodom and Gomorrah. Weeping and gnashing of teeth and torment apart from the glory of God forever. And I know most of you, some of you I do, some I don't, but I want you to search your hearts this morning. Because now you have heard the gospel. If you have heard the gospel, if you have heard that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, He is bringing in His kingdom, and by belief in Him, you will have everlasting life. If you receive that message and you listen to that message, you have life with Him. If you don't, it will be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. Do not leave this place. Do not leave this Sunday. Do not go one more moment without taking into account your own life. My faith and trust in Christ or am I shaken off and emptied out like all the pagans throughout all of history? And so what is this message that the people are rejecting? We look at this in our last section here. So they went out. What did they not receive or listen to, rather? So they went out, verse 12, and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many uh, anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. So if you notice, up to this point, everything that's mentioned here has been attributed to Jesus. The preaching, the healing, the casting out of demons, now it is attributed to the apostles. Now it is realized. The realization of kingdom ministry in the apostles. And the first thing we see is they went out to proclaim, heralding, the messenger that goes before the king, I serve a mighty king. My king is coming. His kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, as Matthew tells us. If you take the message of Matthew and the message of Mark, you get an exact quote of what Jesus preached in Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel. This is the message. These two are inseparable. Proclaiming the good news of the king and repenting. You cannot separate these two. There is no preaching without the proclamation of repentance. And so repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. It's not just 
saying, oh, I feel guilty for that. It is a, it is a full change of mind, of will, of, of action. It is turning from something to something. So when, he, when Mark says here, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, this could also be translated that people should be converted. They should convert. They should change from what they were in. The, the dead law that could not save them to new life in Christ. They should repent to turn from. Now, even though we were not sent out by Jesus, even though we were not given authority to cast out demons, the problem of the world is still the same. They must convert. They must turn from what gives death to what gives life. The message is still the same. The answer is still the same. The gospel is still the same. This is normative. Everyone, everywhere must repent or die. Everyone, everywhere must believe in Christ to have eternal life. There is no other hope. There is no other way into the kingdom. There is one way, one truth, one life, and one kingdom of God. Amen. This is their message. This is our message. And so this was first. Along with it, as they go, they will preach. Along with it, they're going to cast out demons. Many demons. And this sounds successful. And it was in Christ's authority. They did not do this before Christ sent them out. But also, we're going to see when we get to chapter 9, there were some demons that they couldn't cast out. One? Or why? Because their prayer life was not strong enough. They trusted too much in themselves and their own ability. They need to be humbled and taught how to pray. And we'll get there when we get to chapter 9. And they anointed many with oil. And there's nothing mystical going on here with the oil, but it was very symbolic. And, you know, when you didn't have CVS in the Old Testament, olive oil was used for a lot of things. It was oral. They would, they would, they would drink it for certain instances. They would, it was topical. They would put it on the skin. But it was also symbolic. Not that the oil has any power in it, but there's a, there's a lot of beautiful imagery earlier in our corporate prayer we read from Psalm 133. The oil of blessing that happens when brothers deal in unity. Psalm 145, uh, or Psalm 45, tells us, calls it the, the oil of, of gladness. And there is a, a picture with being anointed with oil that, that God's blessing and gladness is on you, in the, and it is the authority of Christ that heals, not the oil. So any of these guys trying to sell you uh, magic oil online and send you a vial, don't buy it. Um, not, not that you were tempted, but in case you were. So that was very symbolic for that culture, and that's you know, that is descriptive of what they were doing. They were casting out demons. But what is prescriptive for us? Is there a parallel for us? I want us to bring it full circle in our last couple moments in Ephesians chapter 6. We started reading this intentionally. And I want you to see all the parallels in Ephesians 6. Because when the apostles were sent out, they were sent out from the king. They were sent out to preach and heal. But there was, there's this undertone of battle as well. They're going to battle with Jesus' enemies. They're going to battle with the unclean spirits. They're going to battle with, with, with those who are sworn enemies, who hate him with everything. And we also are called into battle. We also, like I said, we don't see demon possession as often as, as they did. And I'm not, I, don't, I don't begin to know exactly what is going on in the spiritual realm. But we know clearly what Paul tells us is going on in the spiritual realm and what we have been given to 
combat that. So I want to read this entire passage. I want to bring a couple things to your attention. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Just like the apostles' uh, authority. His strength, His might, not our own. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. These unclean spirits, the, the principalities, the dark forces are still in operation. And it is only by the armor of God, by His protection, by His provision that you can stand against them. Because, or for, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness and evil spiritual forces, or excuse me, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. There's a similarity here. When Jesus sends out his disciples, he tells them what to take and what not to take. When we are sent out, we are also given supplies. So while those apostles were very limited in their, in their physical supplies, they were fully fortified in their spiritual supplies. And this is normative. God does send his people out with exactly what they need, and here's what he gives us. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the, in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. There's a lot of standing going on here. You will not cower or be afraid of principalities. Stand, therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth, they took on a belt which held their clothes together. The belt of truth holds us, binds us, holds the rest of the armor in place. It is truth that holds it all together. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect your heart, be righteous and holy with the living God. And, and in shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel, not just flimsy little leather sandals, but it is the gospel that we stand on. It is the gospel that, that, that holds us up and keeps us from stumbling. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Our protection is our faith. Our rock stands in front of us, intercedes for us, protects us, this shield in all circumstances. And take on the helmet of salvation that covers our head and protects us. And our only offensive offensive weapon the sword of the spirit which is the word of god the only the only tool we have with which to fight back the only tool we need with which to fight back and why and don't forget this part also praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints go before the lord in battle but go before other saints in battle as well we need one another we are not set down alone. We are not meant to be alone. And also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is all for the sake of the gospel. Paul is an ambassador in chains. We are, an amba we are ambassadors in freedom. And everything here promised to the saints is given to us. And this should be a charge. There are instructions for our journey, but we're also given so much that we take for granted. So just a couple points of application in our last few minutes. First, there's an important detail that links this story later on in chapter 6. Look at verse 30 of chapter 6 in Mark. 
We'll get there in a few weeks. But I want to bring it to your attention. One very important application here. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Jesus actually grants them and wants them to have leisure and rest. This is so important. So many people fail and struggle in ministry because they don't take time away. They don't rest and recuperate and rejuvenate. But I also love the very personal nature here. Jesus instructs them, he sends them out, and they come back and they give them feedback. This is great discipleship. This is great teaching and and, and building up. They observe what he does. He gives them direction. He gives them freedom. Go out and learn how to do this, and he comes back and he gives them, them freedom. This is how we train and encourage for the ministry. You give direction, you give freedom, and then you give feedback. And they learn as they go, and and the Lord empowers them, but also gives them rest. And it's a beautiful thing when you've been laboring hard, and the Lord restores you and brings you rest. But sadly, I think many people want the rest and the leisure without the labor. You only deserve the labor, or excuse me, the, 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 the leisure and the rest if you have been laboring. Rest is a good thing, and you should do it unto the Lord, but it should not be the only thing. The next thing I want you to see, um, this is kind of a dry run for the ministry after Pentecost. You know, they were allowed to learn and and, uh, minister and come back and share those experiences, and with the Holy Spirit, this is what they could do without the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, now we see the gospel go out throughout, throughout Acts. And so this is kind of the, the, the shadow of things to come. And then so for us, um, there are many students in here, many Bible students, many who want to be in ministry, and there's a lot of great applications to think about. It is a good thing to be prepared for ministry. But be careful of putting all your trust and all your hope in your preparation. Because if you are not called by the Lord, if you are not empowered by the Lord, if you are not sustained by the Holy Spirit, all your preparation means nothing. Certainly, you should prepare. But your trust is not only in your preparation. And don't be consumed with the supplies. Don't feel like I've got to acquire more and uh, do more. If the Lord is calling you, if the Lord is sending you out, He will give you everything you need. And don't miss the step about frequent rest. Going to a place of desolation to be recharged in the Lord. So many men fail in ministry because they try to do it alone and they try to do it seven days a week in their own strength. There's a reason why 2,000 pastors drop out of the ministry every month. Most of them fail to do this. They fail to bring others alongside. They want to do it all themselves and they fail to rest. And so for everyone, I want you to think about the kingly connection here. We know the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything I have commanded to you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. But you can't forget the first verse. When Jesus sends out the disciples. The great commission that all Christians should hold on to begins with verse 18 of Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
even when we, the church, has been entrusted with baptism and, and, with, and with teaching and with discipling, that is in Christ's authority. There's nothing we do in our own authority. So when you feel like we are inadequate or we're not the apostles, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. And now you are mine. As your king, I give you my authority to proclaim the good news, to disciple, to baptize, to teach for my kingdom, for my name's sake. And what is happening, it is supernatural. We may not see demons getting cast out of people, but every time you see someone go from death to life, every time you see someone grow, it is God's supernatural kingdom growing and shaping and building this broken, carnal kingdom that will one day pass away. That is our king. That is our mission. We are not alone. Just like they needed to be out two by two and needed one another. There's a beautiful picture in marriage. There's a beautiful picture in ministry. And it is a beautiful picture in the church. For all you lone rangers out there, stop it. You are not strong enough on your own. And we need you. And you need us. This is our strength, is our unity with one another. And we labor on, shoulder to shoulder, against our adversaries. And we labor in His strength, in His authority, with His armor, for His glory. Let's pray. We praise You, O Lord. Maker of heaven and earth. God of all creation. Redeemer. Shepherd. Husband. Deliverer. Savior. Helper. Sustainer. Provider. Mediator. King. High Priest prophet. I could go on all day. You are our God. There is no other. We are your people. We praise you what you have done in our hearts. We praise you for the gospel that you have given us, for the assurance that you have given us, for the kingdom that you have brought us into, to the table that you set before us, one of abundance as sons and daughters of the King. Lord, may we stand in that boldness. May we stand against the powers of the evil one. May we stand on the rock of the gospel. May we stand on the finished work of our Savior. And may we fall before Him and Him alone and worship and honor and praise that He may be glorified because He has taken us, the unlikely, the wretched, the sinners, the weak, given us mercy, given us grace, and given us confidence in Him that we might praise Him and bring Him glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.